Well, like I said, welcome. Uh, today we have the kids with us. Um, I work from home and our kids go to school at home, so I'm used to the distraction. Uh, the, so if the building's burning down around me, I should be okay. I'll just keep plodding along. But uh, like I said, welcome on this Reformation Sunday. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, go to our good God in prayer and prepare our hearts for worship. Let's pray. Our good Father in heaven, we thank you for this, this day, this Sunday, this Sabbath rest that we have in you. Lord, we ask that you would calm our hearts, that you would incline them towards you in faith. Lord, that you would make them malleable hearts that are soft to your word. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. My wife and I are, like I just said, are blessed with five beautiful children. And so from time to time, you're inevitably going to get those zinger questions. And it always seems to happen. Parents, when does this happen? Right before bed. And I don't know, I don't know if it's a stalling technique or if it's the Holy Spirit or maybe a mixture of both. But it always seems that if my kids are going to ask that soul-searching theological question, it's going to be like right before bed. I'm trying to head out the door. I'm exhausted. I want to turn the light off. And then I get that question. Well, some time ago, we were putting our kids down, and one of them like pipes up from the dark. How do you know that you have faith? And so, you know, in that moment, I'm very tired, (laughs) arguably grumpy. uh, And I just want to respond with that flippant, you just know go to bed. But I didn't. I didn't. So thankfully, I didn't. And so we ended up having a great conversation. We have a lot of great conversations in those hours. And it it turned to faith and belief and the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, But then once the conversation goes to Adam and Eve and belly buttons, then I know it's time for bed. But but that question that night was and is a great question that, that we can even ask ourselves. How do you know how do you know that you have saving faith? You know, do ask myself, do I really, do I really believe? Does my life reflect that belief that I say that I have? How do you know that you have, like Mike was saying, the assurance of things hoped for? Things like the return of Jesus, God's judgment of sin, the conviction of things not seen. Like the existence of heaven and hell. How do you know, how can you know that you truly believe these things? Or for that matter, how can we give one another the assurance that we can see the the life of faith in the lives of those around us when they come to us and say, I just, I don't know if I have faith. As we're going to see this morning, faith is not a simple, yes, I believe that to be true. It's not just a, a mere mental assent to a given set of facts. It's something that propels and enables actions that would otherwise be impossible. And that's something that, that true and pure God-gifted faith, that in turn powers our faithfulness. So if you take anything away from this morning, take this. Faith powers faithfulness. Let me say that again. Faith powers our faithfulness. We can see this when we consider the fruit of faith in the lives of others. 
and be it means of a biography or in Scripture. And so it's no surprise that Paul writes in Philippians, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This morning, we're going to look at three brothers that walked according to that example that we have in Paul. We're looking at Hebrews 11, 4 through 7. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. We have them in the back and they're absolutely free if you want to take it home or if you want to give one to a friend. This is the beginning of the heroes of the faith section of Hebrews. And we're going to consider three of these heroes and we're going to seek to understand just how they were faithful and what effect that faith had upon their lives and what it allowed them to do and how we can benefit from their faithfulness and know that we have that same saving faith. So please follow along with me as I read Hebrews 11, 4 through 7. Let's turn there now. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In these three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, we can see clear examples of faith. And while the circumstances and the walks of their life may be different, the God in whom they placed their faith is and was the same today. In these three men, we see the outworking or the, the fruit of their faith produced in their sacrifice, their living, and their works. And as we do that, it's my hope that you and I will be encouraged to examine our own lives and see that same fruit and know that we too have that saving faith. And if you're not a Christian, or you just, for whatever reason, you can't say knowingly that you have that faith, my hope is that you will come to understand just how readily available it is and how awesome it is. So let's jump right in and start with Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The full account of Abel's sacrifice and his brief life is in Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, 
sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Clearly, the, the offerings, what they gave, was different for these two brothers. Abel offered the firstborn and the fat portions of his flock, while Cain offered the fruit of the ground. Now, when I first learned about this in Sunday school some 40-odd years ago, I thought that's a no-brainer. Steak is always better than vegetables. <laughs> but God's pleasure in the sacrifice is not tied to what is being sacrificed, but the motivation that compels that sacrifice. We're not told the exact reason that God had no regard for Cain's offering, and some commentators have even speculated that it was that Cain offered a sacrifice on his terms, or that he offered grain instead of flesh. But I think that speculation is a bit of a red herring. It's something that's not really the true issue here. The true issue is not so much what he offered, but the attitude of his heart. The issue is one of faith. Abel's faith was demonstrated in his sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And the Lord said to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is God telling Cain that he needs to give with a right heart. The crux of the matter here is the heart and the faith that drives it. Brothers and sisters, the Lord sees not as we see, we look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I've said earlier that it wasn't so much what Abel gave, but it was the condition of his heart. It was a heart that was inclined towards God. This is what enabled that gift. Saints, giving the best gift doesn't make the inclination of your heart one of faith. But giving from a heart of faith enables you to give the best of the best. And we can see this disposition of Abel's heart in that he was able to sacrificially and joyfully give his first fruits. That word first fruits means the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And here he offered the fat portions. That's the best part of the animal. That was a sacrificial gift because it was giving up a lot. In our culture today, we don't often think of fat as valuable. We throw it away, we trim it off the food. We think of it as gross, but when you're making your existence off the land, fat is king. That's the most energy-dense portion of the animal. That's where all the life-sustaining calories are most abundant. And Abel sacrificially gave this to God. That's why verse 4 of our text says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. He gave a better sacrifice because he saw that God was better, that God is worthy that he's worth more than the fleeting pleasure of a full stomach. Worth more than any warmth or beauty that that wool of that animal could ever provide. That is a, seeing that in his life is seeing the conviction of greater things. That's an internal perspective that's anchored in Christ. That's a conviction that the best things that his life had to offer for him were nothing compared to the riches to, to worshiping God with an eye towards the future and eternity. And those same riches await us. I was speaking with a dear brother last night, and, and he was sharing about a difficult thing in his life. But our conversation, it just didn't end there. 
It didn't end in the misery of the moment or the circumstances. It ended with both of us speaking truth about the joy that awaits us, looking forward to that glorious hope and joy that we cannot even comprehend in this life. The Bible says that we're not even able to to imagine just how rich and powerful and awesome heaven is. I can imagine quite a heaven. But the Bible says, I come short of that. That's how amazing it's going to be. And so, yeah, my friend's hurt was very real. His pain was real. But like Abel, we know that we have a hope that is greater than any hurt or pain. And it's greater because it's anchored in Christ. And we can be assured of this, even if at times that we sadly identify with Cain. We can give money or time to God because we feel like we have to. It's an obligation instead of a desire. It's not out of a posture that he is the father and creator arrayed in the splendor of majesty. And I know if I'm honest, I've seen this in my life. That I can easily view giving like paying taxes. Or I give God the leftovers, those, those things that I don't need. I give out of my abundance. Well, I did well this month, so I can give God a little bit more. And so I found it's helpful to just stop and think. God, God wants my heart. He doesn't need anything from me, let alone my money. It's not like he's short on cash or that he needs extra money. God's will for his church is going to prevail whether or not I give 10 cents or $10 million. God doesn't need you or your sacrifice, but he wants you. And here's the thing. When we give sacrificially, we're taking an active role in God's redemptive plan for his people. He wants you to give because you understand that he is awesome not because you're supposed to. If I get my wife flowers, and I walk in the door, and I say, wife, out of sincere obligation that I love you, I'm giving you these flowers. Those flowers are better suited for the compost bin than the mantle. But if I tell her, sweetheart, these flowers are but a token of my undying passion for you and my desire for you, Their beauty reminds me of you, and I delight in calling myself your husband, and it pleases me to please you. Those flowers are going to be cherished. (laughs) Because my heart, my heart in giving those flowers is to please her and bring her joy, because I delight in her. That's what God wants from us. And so, Sojourn, let's examine our hearts in our giving. God loves a cheerful giver. Someone who gives out of faith and awe of his beauty. When you give, don't do it out of guilt or an obligation, but with a heart that has been transformed to see that unsurpassed worth and beauty of Jesus. A heart that looks forward to eternity. Look in faith to things not seen. The future hope that you have anchored in heaven. I mean, just imagine... the beauty of Jesus wrapping you in his arms wiping away your tears with his nail scarred hands saying well done you you valued me in life 
And I value you in eternity. And I want you. I want you to be with me. I want us to delight in one another. Well done, good and faithful servant. Is anybody that would say, give so that God will bless you, give so that God will put a hedge of protection around you, give so that an abundance will return to you, that's heresy. That's not the gospel. That's the prosperity gospel, and it's an abomination to faith. Let me say that again. The, uh, the prosperity gospel is an abomination, and it's repugnant to God. When we give, it's with no expectation of worldly health, of riches in return. Consider Abel. He gave sacrificially, but he was not blessed with health, wealth, and prosperity. His life was cut short. He was murdered by his brother. And so we've seen in Abel what it means to give in faith. And so now we're going to move on to Enoch, where we see that faith is also demonstrated by the entirety of your walk, your day-to-day living. And if you're wondering who Enoch is, you are not alone. Not counting the genealogies or the birth records of who begat who, Enoch is mentioned three times in Genesis, Hebrews, and the book of Jude. And since they're short, I'm just going to go ahead and read them from Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And here's the key verse. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And in Jude, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And the third and last time is in our text today, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Essentially, what we know about Enoch is that he walked with God. He prophesied about God's coming judgment. He pleased God and he didn't die. He was just taken to heaven by God. Given when he was born and lived, we also know that he lived in a very dark, dark, wicked time. This is before the flood, where scripture says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Enoch, we see a man walking against the flow of society. He stood out. He was known. He was commended as having pleased God. And he was able to do this only because of his faith. Verse 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. But it doesn't just stop there. Verse 6 continues and gives us an insight into the building blocks of faith. So without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
And here's what that faith looks like in, in Enoch's life. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we can see here that faith that is pleasing to God is a faith that draws near to God. And we see this notion several times in Hebrews, drawing near to God. In confidence, we are to draw near to the throne of grace. He is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. And the law can never make perfect those who draw near. And let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. To draw near to God is to be God-minded, to seek him, to be walking with him side by side as a companion with a common direction, a common goal. And the ultimate destination, the ultimate reward is that we get to be with God in Christ. As Christians, we understand that we can only ever draw near to God through Christ. If we don't have faith in Christ, we're not going to want to be anywhere near God. And if we're not at all inclined to go in his direction, people can say, yeah, I'm religious and that they love God all they want. But at the end of the day, all that religiousness just amounts to a bunch of man-centered effort. If they don't have a fruit-producing faith, a faith in Christ that produces fruitfulness, that seeks the God of the Bible, it's impossible for them to please God. Verse 6 says it plain and clear. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And the faith that verse 6 talks about is that fruit-producing faith. The opposite of faith is depending on ourselves and our actions to figure out where we ought to be walking and to get there under our own power and direction. Now, I've had people say to me, that's nice. I'm happy for you that you found Jesus. But I follow God this way and without Jesus. Or, I'm sure Jesus will save me, but I'd like to live my life a little bit before I decide to draw near him. Friends, God's word says, seek him while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. You and I do not know what tomorrow holds. You may well intend to get serious about your faith next week, not knowing that you're going to get in a wreck this afternoon and find yourself standing before God with nothing more than a, a good intention to get right with him. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. An intention to get serious about faith is no substitute for actually seeking God. Seeking Him as the object of your faith and that He rewards those who seek Him. Yeah, you may believe in God, and that's all well and good, but are you really seeking Him? You may have been like me. When I was a young boy, I prayed a prayer. And I thought, hey, as long as I prayed that prayer, I'm good to go. It was like the get-out-of-jail card in Monopoly. I could live however I wanted because, after all, I prayed the prayer and I got the card. But then I went on to live in a manner that was no different than the fallen world around me. And that simply just showed that that prayer, when I was younger, was just empty words. That was not a, a prayer of faith. It spoke more of an intention to avoid hell than a desire to get God, the most beautiful thing in existence. Well, God's another thing. Part of seeking God is, is seeking Him in the understanding that He rewards those who seek Him. To have faith is not just believe that God exists, but to believe that He exists, and then He wants to bless you 
And he wants to bless you with himself. That he wants to give you the righteousness of Christ who died on the cross for you so that his eternal hatred of sin in your life will be satisfied and you can be with him for eternity. Without faith, you understand that Jesus, sorry, with faith, you understand that Jesus bore the burden of your sin by dying on the cross in your place. That's the gospel. And it changes everything in your life. So that when the world looks at your walk, they see a walk like Enoch's, a walk with God. And when you think that way, when you see that God is the object of your faith, that he is most worthy of pursuing and worshiping in all of existence, and you seek him in the faith that he will reward you by giving himself to you, by being in his presence, you are drawing near to God, you are walking with him in faith, and you are pleasing him. In the end, the greatest gift God can give you is himself. We talk about mansions and crowns and streets of gold and great feasts in heaven, but these things are just trinkets. They're nothing. The book of Revelation talks about streets that are paved with gold, and we think, wow, that's, that's pretty rich. But I think the, the point there is that God is so amazing and so beautiful that we're going to look at something as common as a street, something that's trod upon. We're going to look at gold like that. Gold is like a dirt road, and God is so much more beautiful. We get God to sojourn, rest, rejoice, relish in this fact that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You can please God, and it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've seen, what you've been to, what's been done to you. God looks at you, and he sees your faith. He sees it's powering your faithfulness, and he's pleased with you. He loves you and wants you to seek him in all that you do. And God does call us to action. He calls us to do. Ours is not a complacent faith. It's a faith that is action-oriented. And God uses us as his instruments, his vessels on earth to bring about his divine will. And we see this in the life of Noah, a faith that prompted action in response to God's word. Starting in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's funny that we often talk about how we are all descendants of Adam. But let's consider for a moment the fact that everyone in this room, everyone on this planet, is a descendant of Noah. I mean, how funny would it be if you, if you get to, to heaven and find out that Noah had some weird physical distinctiveness about him that nobody else before him had, but all of his children had, like that little divot underneath your nose? We are all his children. And when it says it saved his household, we are part of that household in that sense. And it is said of Noah that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and then he walked with God. It says in reverent fear he constructed an ark. He took God at his word, and he acted. And it was his faith that allowed him to build an ark that would save his household, and for that matter, the human race. And this was no small undertaking. It's not a a weekend project. 
Scholars believe that it took him anywhere from 100 to 120 years to build the ark. I look at our neighbor's yard sometimes, and I see a project, and I'm like, when is he ever going to get that done? I mean, imagine looking in Noah's backyard for 120 years. Imagine building a boat in the middle of Kansas and telling people, a flood is coming. Believe me. All that is to say is that he was a man of faith, and he acted upon it. And we tend to think of Noah as this, this superhero, because he did do something great. He took a hundred years to build a big boat, probably in the face of lots of ridicule and opposition. But brothers and sisters, all of those godly attributes that you see in Noah, those are true of you. If you're in Christ, those are absolutely true of you. If you have seen your sin and you've repented of it and you've placed your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You have the righteousness of Christ. So you are blameless in the sight of God. And because of this, you can walk with God. And so we share that same faith as Noah. We live and breathe today because God used a faithful man all those years ago. And in Noah, we have a clear example of faith that is certain of what we do not see. He believed that a great flood would come and that salvation would be by means of an ark. Noah's faith demonstrates to us that faith brings us into a right relationship with God. And this type of faith also motivates our actions to please God with obedience. And always remember that our obedience doesn't generate our faith in Christ. Instead, our faith generates the obedience. As we see when it says, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. That's the faith in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Let me say that again. Our faith generates our obedience. And while God is not calling us to to necessarily build an ark for the saving of a household, he is calling us to preach the gospel for the saving of his children. That is our faith in action. Our faith powers our faithfulness to walk in obedience of the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sojourn, God has prepared great works in advance that you should walk in them. And this is a walk of faith. Don't work at the fruit of faith thinking it will gain favor with God. Instead, in faith, favor God in all that you do and watch the fruit that it produces. Pray that you would walk in faith, a faith that screams to the world that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Like these three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, who showed that they believe that they had saving faith in God. They had faithfulness that powered their faith, powered their actions. And it wasn't by their efforts. And brothers and sisters, for these three men we considered today, it wasn't how much faith they had. There's not really a mention of that in these verses. It's the fact that they had faith and what that faith was based upon. It's faith in God. 
faith in his word. Faith that he's true. Saints, we don't need much faith. Even if God gives you the faith that is the size of a mustard seed, you are his. That is enough faith to be his child. Out of that faith, God will help you to give sacrificially like Abel, to walk a life like Enoch that's pleasing to God, and to take action like Noah. And so as we begin our, our Lord's Supper here, we're reminded of what Christ has done, and we celebrate that mediation through the Lord's Supper. We remember that on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's an act of faith. We're proclaiming the return of Jesus because we know it's going to happen. And we do this as a church family, not as, it's not an individual thing. It's a whole body thing. And there's nothing magical or mystical about the bread or grape juice. The beauty is in what they point to. They point to something that we have never seen. No one in this room saw the crucifixion. We all came about it by secondhand knowledge. We read a book about it. Someone told us. But we believe it absolutely. And we live our lives and we bank our souls on it. If you are a Christian, you can know that you walk with God, that he is pleased with you, and that you have been commended as righteous. So with this in mind, take a moment to examine your faith, examine your heart. Think about the faith-born fruit in your sacrifice, your living, and your obedience to God. And thank the one who made that all possible. Jesus, who Hebrews says is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We don't, we don't perfect our faith. That work has been accomplished. And so when you come forward, what Jesus has done on the cross will be spoken over you. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, we just ask that you remain in your seat. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship for those who have placed their hope and faith in the sufficiency of Christ's blood to turn away God's wrath. And so we're very grateful that you're here. But please understand, this act of communion is our corporate and individual yes and amen to what Jesus has done for us. So please take this time to seek God, seek faith, and consider the blessing of knowing him as a father. Let's pray. Lord, we could ask you for joy and strength and wisdom. We could ask you for protection. But without faith, none of these things would be possible in our lives. So today, Lord, we come to you as your blood-bought children, and we ask with confidence that you would increase our faith, increase its output in our lives Help us to give sacrificially. Help us to walk in abundance, in a pleasing manner to you. Help us to, to be obedient to your word, to your calling in our lives like Noah. 
We ask that you would do this not for our glory or for our esteem, but for your good, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.